Hello, and welcome to our remote sermon podcast for Sunday, May 10th. Statistics have shown that during the pandemic, there's been a spike in internet usage, including a 16% increase in the average number of people streaming Netflix, and Dave and I are no exception. A few weeks ago, we re-watched one of our favorite movies, The Shawshank Redemption. Most of the movie is set in a state penitentiary and depicts the friendship between Red, played by Morgan Freeman, and Andy, played by Tim Robbins. They have an ongoing debate regarding hope. Red, who has been there longer, feels hope is both pointless and dangerous, but Andy thinks otherwise. The movie has probably one of the best film endings of all time, and as a warning, this may be a spoiler for those of you who haven't seen it yet, but the end is basically about Red going on a journey to recover hope, helped along by Andy, who leaves him these words. Remember, Red, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. The last words of the movie are read, saying in a voiceover, I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Someone asked me recently, what are you looking forward to? The answer to that question tells you so much about someone, doesn't it? It tells you what they enjoy thinking about, not what they have to think about. It tells you what keeps them going. But the pandemic has changed our answer to that question. It's taken away or changed so much of our material hopes. Sometimes we're left wondering, what is there to look forward to? Another day spent at home? More of the same? That's why our passage in 1 Peter today is so relevant for us now. It's all about hope. There are two things we should know about the recipients of this letter. They are suffering and they are scattered. Peter says in chapter 1 that they are suffering grief in all kinds of trials. In chapter 4, that they are in a fiery trial, that they are those who suffer, and they are scattered. Peter is not writing to a centralized church, but to people living throughout a vast area of 129,000 square miles, notable primarily for its enormous diversity in geography and in the origins, languages, customs, religions, and political histories of its inhabitants. This is a letter for the time we're living in, a time of hardship and sometimes suffering, a time when our church is physically scattered and we're all experiencing things differently. It's in this context that Peter talks about hope. This week, we're looking at chapter 1, verses 3 through 12, and I will say, because this passage is somewhat more grammatically complex, it may help to have a copy of it in front of you as we go along. Let's examine it together by asking three questions. What is the prerequisite for hope? What is the nature of hope? And what is the consequence of hope? What is hope's prerequisite? What is its nature? And what is its consequence? First, what is the prerequisite for hope? 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3-12 through 12 is actually one single sentence in Greek. Paul often does this too at the beginning of his letters, and it reminds me of how kids get when they're so excited about something they can't stop their sentence. It's like this happened, then that, and because of this, so then that. This is doxology. It's all theology. In fact, it's important Peter begins with this because it's the foundation to understanding the rest of the book. But it's theology in an epic, run-on, somewhat grammatically confusing sentence because it's theology from the heart. 
when you're suffering, you don't need a textbook or an article. You need words from the heart, and that's what this letter is. Beginning in verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ! Exclamation mark. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. What is the prerequisite for hope? How do you get it? Peter tells us the answer. You have to experience new birth. Why does he use this metaphor? Well, let's consider what we know about births. First of all, birth is involuntary. It's not something we achieve on our own. Babies don't birth themselves, as all of us know. (laughs) They don't say, I want to be born tomorrow. Babies participate in the birth, but they are only born through the labor and suffering of someone else. Peter says, God is the one who causes us to be born spiritually, according to his mercy. It's not because of anything we do. In John chapter 3, we meet a man named Nicodemus who is a Pharisee and a ruler of the Jews. In other words, this guy is a moral paragon. He has got it together. But when he comes to ask Jesus how to enter the kingdom of God, Jesus doesn't say, well, you're doing pretty good actually, but let's make a few tweaks, supplement here and there. No, he says, you must be born again. You must start off as a spiritual baby. Not even Nicodemus could earn his way in. Secondly, birth is transformational. When babies are born, they move from an underwater existence in the dark to a place of air and light. Suddenly, the baby is able to see an entirely new dimension of reality than what they were able to sense in utero. Their lungs are taking in air instead of amniotic fluid. The circuitry of blood and their vessels and valves change direction. It is an utterly transformative experience. Technically, babies are the same species they were in utero, but birth makes them so different in how they function, inside and out. Thirdly, birth determines our identity and begins our growth. It is through our birth that we receive our ethnic identity, our citizenship, our socioeconomic class, our innate potentialities, and birth is designed to start a process of growth. We don't pop out as adults, of course. We all start as babies. We can't just sit there the way we came out. We have to grow. All parents are familiar with just how much babies have to learn. They have to learn to self-soothe at night, how to swallow solid food instead of pushing it out with your tongues, how to ambulate, how to cross the midline with their extremities. I always enjoyed that one when our kids as babies discovered that they had extremities. They would spend all day sucking on their fingers and toes. And then their hands discovered each other and they would go around all day clasped together as if in joyful reunion. Why go into all this detail? Because I think for many of us, Christianity is more like a hobby or a habit or an achievement than like a birth. It's something we subconsciously think we can be good enough for or earn our way into or inherit. It's something we add to a list of things we do, a kind of side interest in life that doesn't change the way we live most of the day. But none of that is birth. Birth is something we receive only through the labor and suffering of Jesus. It is something comprehensively transformative, something that irreversibly changes us, that defines us more than anything else in the world. Perhaps the best way to put this is to take a peek ahead into verse 12, where Peter talks about 
the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you. The gospel is an announcement. It's good news, not good advice. When a baby is born, people send birth announcements. They don't say, well, you might want to consider that Elise Roy Chang was born at eight pounds on August 31st. No, you say, we are happy to announce the birth of Elise Roy Chang. When Dave became a believer, his mentor immediately took him around his college campus and made him introduce himself to people with the announcement that he was now a Christian. I think he did this so that Dave wouldn't change his mind, but the point is, news is about something that has already happened that we must respond to. Advice is something you may or may not use depending on how useful it is for your own purposes. As Christians, Peter says, we have been reborn. We have a new identity and citizenship that redefines our relationship with everything and transforms our identity and character. And until we understand this, until we receive it, we won't be able to experience true and living hope. So, the prerequisite for hope is new birth. Secondly, what is the nature of this hope? Peter goes on to say, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. The nature of our hope is that it is a living hope. Now, that seems like a strange way to describe hope, but what Peter implies is that our other hopes are dead hopes. Let's say I ask you to make a list of the top 10 things people hope for or hope in. What would that list include? Probably physical health and appearance, career, spouse, money, house, children, fame, reputation. But all those things are ultimately finite. The reality is that if you live long enough, you will eventually lose all those things. They all ultimately end, and therefore they will all ultimately disappoint. They are all dead hopes. If you think about it, what is suffering but the stripping away of our finite hopes? Perhaps our hopes for physical health or being pain-free or for a baby or a spouse or a particular job or a particular feeling. That's what this pandemic has shown us. It has forced us to confront the reality that so many of the hopes we thought were circumstantially sure are actually finite and can't be stripped away in the blink of an eye. But Peter says we have a living hope, one that lasts and never disappoints. Because Jesus rose from the dead, we too will rise to new life one day and see our bodies in the world restored and be with and enjoy God forever. I don't think anyone could have appreciated what Jesus' resurrection meant more than Peter, who went from weeping bitterly before the crucifixion to being the first apostle to see Jesus after he rose from the dead. Peter also says we have an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading. The use of the word inheritance, rather than simply treasure or reward, specifically speaks to the idea of the inheritance of land in the Old Testament, which was the hope of the Israelites as they wandered through the wilderness all those years, and would have been especially poignant to the people of the diaspora that Peter is writing to now. 
Interestingly, the three words Peter chooses to describe our inheritance specifically reverse what went wrong with the story in the Old Testament. Isaiah said the land was wasted and plundered, but our inheritance is imperishable. Jeremiah says the land was made impure by idolatry, but our inheritance is undefiled. Isaiah describes a drought that caused the grass to wither and the flower to fall, but our inheritance is unfading. One commentator puts it this way, The inheritance is untouched by death, unstained by evil, unimpaired by time. It is compounded of immortality, purity, and beauty. What is this inheritance? In verse 5, it is a salvation, a rescue, ready to be revealed in the last time. And if you trace the grammar forward to verse 7, you'll also see that it is the praise, glory, and honor that will come in that day. Some people think this refers to the praise, glory, and honor we will give Jesus. But it can also mean the praise, glory, and honor that Jesus will give us. Either way, this inheritance has already been achieved. It is being kept for us. Nothing that anyone does, nothing that we do can change that. So we see that the nature of our hope is not only that it is a living hope, but that it is a hope that everything that has gone wrong in our finite hopes will be set right and restored through an inheritance that is being kept for us. What are you looking forward to? Do you know what you have to look forward to? N.T. Wright wrote a great book about this called Surprised by Hope. In it, he writes, Most Christians don't know what the ultimate Christian hope really is. The classic Christian answer to the question of death and beyond is not so much disbelieved as simply not known. For example, he says, most Christians think that salvation is about going to heaven when we die, but it's not about the death of the body and escape of the soul. Salvation is being raised to life in God's new heaven and new earth. There is a real hope and rescue and inheritance that ultimately informs how we live now. And that brings us to the last question. What is the consequence of hope? Peter goes on to say in verses 6 through 9, In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Peter here says something interesting. He says, if we really grasp what our living hope is, then it changes how we see suffering. First, we realize that suffering is temporary. Peter says it is now for a little while, a phrase he repeats later on in chapter 5 verse 10. How can he say this? Some people suffer for their whole lives. And I don't know about you, but at times this sheltering in place and the unknown nature of the future ahead feels interminable. The best way to explain it, perhaps, is to go back to the idea of birth. When we're born, we enter a whole new world, a dazzling place we never knew. And when we're way up there, it's crystal clear. 
Okay, I'll stop. But the point is, we're alive to a new reality that includes a new reality in time. We begin to have an end-of-time perspective, a vision of our hope in eternity that completely changes the scale of things in this life. Someone once wrote, This is why scripture can seem at times so blithely and irritatingly out of touch with reality, brushing past huge philosophical problems and personal agony. That is just how life is when you are looking from the end. Perspective changes everything. Secondly, we see that suffering is necessary. Let me ask you a question How do you know what you believe? You may say you believe something, you may think you believe something. You may believe you believe something, but how do you know? The great revealer of what we truly believe is suffering. Peter says it works a lot like the smelting of gold. When you mine gold from the ground, you don't get it in pure form. What you hack out is gold ore, which is basically a hunk of rock that's got some pure gold in it, but mixed in are all kinds of other minerals and metals. You could look at it from all angles and hack away at it all day, but the most effective way to extract the pure gold from its ore is to heat the whole thing up past the melting point of gold, which is 1,948 degrees Fahrenheit, or over four times hotter than the hottest our household ovens can get. At that temperature, the impurities simply burn away, leaving the pure gold. Peter says that it's the stress of sufferings and trials that refines our faith, that burns away the impurities to leave what is real behind. Gold was the most precious material known in Peter's day, and he's saying, genuine faith, the kind of belief you know you have because it's been tested through hard times, is more precious than anything the world can offer. It is what will lead to the praise, glory, and honor we will experience one day. Lastly, we see that suffering can coexist with joy. Look at verse 6 again. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Joy and grief, both in the present, both existing together, both enhancing and allowing the other, our pain driving us even greater into the joy, our joy allowing us to be present to the pain. This sounds like a paradox, right? I mean, even as Christians, most of us think, well, okay, I might have to suffer, but I'm looking forward to being happy when it's over. We might be willing to see the necessity of suffering and grief, but we don't think of it as a place of joy. And when we are joyful, we don't think of it as a place where we can yet grieve. But Jesus was both. Isaiah 53 says he was a man of sorrow. He suffered far more deeply, actually, than any of us ever will, not only at his death, but throughout his life. Yet John says that he has such a full measure of joy that he wishes we could have it. The two can go together, and it goes back to the new perspective we have as a result of our living hope. When I think about someone who lives this out, I think of Joni Erickson Tata, a quadriplegic who is honest about her suffering, yet, if you've ever watched her speak, is full of joy. She said once in a radio talk, You will have your sorrows, yes, you will, but you can be rejoicing at the same time. The Bible says you can't. And if you're wondering how it's possible, it's simply having God's point of view. God sees enough of the coming ecstasy in heaven to make up for the present agony on earth. 
And that is the point of view he wants you to have. And the more you cultivate it, the more you become like Christ and see things as he does, the more you become like the man of sorrows, yet the Lord of joy, the more you will see things his way. I know I do. I'm convinced that the joy I will experience in heaven makes up for all my present hardships in this wheelchair. It is why I'm sorrowful, yet always rejoicing. So we've seen that the prerequisite for hope is new birth. The nature of hope is that it's a living hope. We have an inheritance that will never perish, spoil, or fade, that will set right all our frustrated hopes in this life. We've seen that the consequence of this hope is that we can see our sufferings as temporary, necessary, and even a place of joy. I want to end with this question. As Joni said, this is something we have to cultivate. How do we do that? Yes, we receive the new birth, but what if we're born again but struggling with living into the hope or having any kind of joy in our suffering? Let's read the rest of Peter's words here in verses 10 through 12. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully, inquiring what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ in the subsequent glories. It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves but you and the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Now, the grammar continues to be somewhat convoluted, but what Peter is doing here is placing his audience, who many think were Gentile Christians, into the context of the Old Testament. Their faith is not some newfangled religion that started with Jesus. It is part of a story that stretches back to the Old Testament prophets who searched for good news that was ultimately not for them, but for these believers now. Peter will continue to employ Old Testament imagery like the temple and the priesthood in the next few chapters as he talks about how his readers should practically live this stuff out. But for now, let's look at the end of verse 12. Peter says the things that have been announced to us, in other words, the gospel, the good news, he says these are the things into which angels long to look. And in the Greek, this word long is a pretty strong type of longing. This word look is a pretty active type of looking. It's the way Peter looked when he peered into the tomb to try to find Jesus after he died. Now, angels know a lot. They've been around far longer than you or I, yet they are always interested in reflecting upon the gospel. They're always looking into it, seeing new beauties and wonders in it. They never get bored with it. How do we cultivate hope and joy and suffering? We have to keep looking at the gospel. What do I mean? We have to read the Bible every day. It's simply a necessity for spiritual growth. We have to have people in our lives who can speak the gospel as it applies to us. This may mean pursuing spiritual friendships, making time for talks with our spouse, asking someone to be our spiritual mentor. We have to actively look for the gospel in the events around us every day. We have to practice putting the gospel into words. Telling our kids about it is a great way to do this. The list goes on, but the point is we have to be intentional about putting the gospel before us. You know, Jesus already had the inheritance. He had all the good stuff, but he left it all and suffered. Why? Because he loves us. 
He rescued us and that's why we have a reason to go on, a hope that nothing can take away. If you don't feel or see that now or all the time, that's okay, but keep looking, keep longing to look. Ask God to show you that joy unspeakable and filled with glory because it's there for you. The living hope is there for you. And as Andy tells his good friend, remember, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things, and no good thing ever dies. God, I pray for whoever is listening to this, wherever they are, may you cause them to experience the new birth if they haven't already. May you make the reality of the hope they have come alive to them, even in the middle of isolation or suffering. Jesus, our hope is in you. Show us the gospel today. Show us joy unspeakable and filled with glory. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Amen.